Welcome to Emmaus Way on a beautiful Sunday evening. We're going to start out with a song called They'll Know We Are Christians by Our Love. If you know this one, please join in. What I love about this version of it is there's a certain irony of it to me with the way the music, uh, with the way the music goes. What I love about it, too, is that if it's saying that they'll know we are Christians by our love, then sort of the opposite of that would also be true, that maybe they would doubt that we are Christians if we're not loving. Christians by our love, 
And I may say we like to say that we are a communi- community that is captivated by the gospel. So thanks for being with us as we talk a bit about that captivation tonight. And lucky for you, it's also Ecclesia tonight, which is our quarterly, what some might call church business meeting. I call it a conversation, a church conversation that happens every quarter. Um, so we please stay for that after. Um, we do feed you. So there's that. But first, if the kids would lead us in our community song, our Pentecost song. kids. Great job. Thank you. So today, sorry, I thought Ben was doing the announcements, but I have no idea where Ben is. So I'm like Ben Standen. That's why I was a little flustered. Okay. I was like, where's Ben? What do we do without Ben? Um, So welcome. We have a few announcements. Like I said, um, tonight is Ecclesia, so please stay We will be talking about our budget for this next fiscal year, um, as well as some other important things. Next week is Memorial Day weekend. So church, we will come here at 5, and we'll have an abridged worship gathering um, from 5 until 6. And then at 6 o'clock, we are going to go over to the Jake's home. They live right down Watts Street. They have a fabulous covered porch, and we're going to have a Memorial Day potluck, just kind of community potluck. So bring something to drink, bring a food item to share, bring it with you to the worship gathering if you want, and then we'll head over there at 6. And next week, we're also kicking off our summer series, which is kind of crazy that we're already to summer. Um, But next week, Tim will kick us off um, on our summer series. So come next week, potluck after worship. I think that's it, except for Lara Wooten, who each kind of these past six weeks, um, a lay, someone from lead team has been talking about our finances, giving us a finance update, and inviting us into the Emmaus Way economy. And so Lara kind of rounds us out because we're vote, voting on our budget tonight. Okay. Not voting. We don't vote. We affirm. I'm sorry. I come from a more traditional church where folks vote, but in a mass way, we affirm. So, so like she said, my name's Laura, for those of you who don't know. Um, so I just wrote down a few words to share. I'm not the best off-the-cuff speaker. So, um, When I was a child, 
um, in my Southern Baptist Church in Eastern North Carolina. We celebrated communion once a quarter. Um, we sat quietly in our pews. We made sure we were right with God, and we took our cracker and our tiny plastic cup of juice out of the tray as it passed by us. And one of the things that I love most about Emmaus Way is that we turn this idea of Eucharist on its head. We are loud. We are talkative. Um, we tear bread. We give crackers. We pour wine or juice. Or if we're really lucky, a cup or two of Denny's mold wine. And we share it and we give it to one another. And in giving it to one another in this way, we're demonstrating God's abundant table and God's abundant economy. And so it is when we contribute to Emmaus Way. Our gifts don't just go to some large organization um, with a ton of overhead. You don't have to look very far to see where your gifts go here. They go to one another. They go to this gathering that happens every week to ensure that we can participate in Durham Can, to create art together, to, to pay our wonderful staff and our children's workers, and to invite the extraordinary musicians into our, um, into our gathering from the community. Um, and so, as you probably know, since we've been announcing every week, um, we are running a little bit behind in our budget this year. Um, our fiscal year is coming to a close this month. We run June 1st to May 31st. Um, and what we give over this week and next week is going to help us determine what we do um, with all of those things that I just mentioned. Um, and I invite you to contribute if you haven't already contributed this year. And if Emmaus Way is your community and a part of your economy, um, you can give in the metal bowl in the hallway. You can give um, clicking the dollar sign on um, our website. And you can also give um, through mailing a check to our, our mailing address. Um, and we're going to be talking more about our budget tonight, as Molly said, at Ecclesia. Um, and we invite you to come to that and ask any questions, um, give any input, um, and we'd love to have you. Thanks. Thanks so much, Sarah. Molly, Dave Teeson has one quick question. Dave Teeson. Oh, yes. So, thanks. Um, Religious Coalition, as you know, during Advent, we... Um, kind of partnered with them more intentionally throughout Advent, and one way we are investing in their work um, was from Advent to Pentecost, um, collecting money. We made origami boxes um, to collect money to go toward a tombstone for a family that has lost a loved one due to violence. Um, Marsha Owen has always said the most painful thing for families is um, for them to not be able, that many of them cannot afford a tombstone, and so their child dies, and they think that their child dies and is nameless forever, will not be known. And so they're trying to invite communities to purchase tombstones for these families. So if you forgot your money last week on Pentecost, or like James and I, we were out of town, um, we are taking donations still for that. If you just want to write Religious Coalition on the envelope, um, that way Dave can know that it's a Religious Coalition, and he's going to cut a check to give to them. And Marcia hopes that at some point the family, we will be able to be partnered up, get to meet the family, um, yeah, so, and perhaps even be at the service where they're placing the tombstone, if some of us would like. So be on the lookout for more information. Any other announcements? No. Okay. Tim and I are going to kick us off tonight. So one of the things that we um, 
wanted to do tonight, actually we have a lot of, I think, important things we want to do tonight that flow together um, and um, are are important in terms of our identity as a as a community, and, and in even more so how that identity plays in our forward-moving life together. So um, one of the things that the staff has said a lot, this has been really a, a unique and special year for us. Certainly it's been marked by Molly's joining our staff, uh, but we, we feel like we are moving into new spaces and new possibilities. So it's been a really good year, and one of the things that we think um, will, uh, that we the things we've talked about this year help us imagine in those new spaces. So I wanted to give you guys a chance to uh, um, kind of report back to uh, just a thought, anything that came out of First Peter. Molly and I, why don't you and I kind of rehearse what we thought were some really significant themes that we've been talking about. As, as many of you reported, it's a challenging letter to, to read. It, it's, it, it was trapped in uh, some old language, particularly uh, a real focus on marginalized persons, uh, people that were slaves, people, uh, women, others that were deeply marginalized in the ancient world. But one of the things that was emerging through our conversation, a couple of big things, one was this idea of an ethic. And, and it was kind of an ethic that sometimes, if you've been in certain traditions, uh, the ethic of living good lives with an expectation of impact of good lives, that may, if, if, you, were, if you kind of were nurtured uh, in a very high grace tradition where God does things for us and, and, and God makes it right because of God's grace, this kind of ethic of First Peter was probably a different one for you to think about. But it's, it saturates the letter, this idea that we're living lives such that something happens. And the something happens is this huge collision between the ethic of the gospel and the ethic of an empire. And, you know, and we talked a lot about what empires do. Empires recreate themselves. They control lives. They conscript armies. They, uh, they, they take your soldier, their sons and your daughters and turn them into soldiers and uh, kind of servants of the empire. And the gospel's collision with that was, was, uh, was going to be a violent one. But Peter keeps imagining that Good lives will be transformative. And this is where Molly picked up the dialogue and really kind of hit us with, I think, one of the most critical elements of the whole New Testament. This radical, what we called an apocalyptic ethic of love. Uh, An ethic of love that in many ways unveils and demonstrates what God's kingdom is all about. And it's an ethic that's not limited. There's not a lot of questions one can ask of this love and say, well, when is too much? And what is too much? And what isn't too radical? It seems to be the way it's presented to us is something that is an expansive, imaginative, overwhelming love. A love such that it cancels out uh, in, in places and in communities and relationships the impact of broken relationships. So that, those are some of the themes that we talked about. Uh, we also talked about this whole idea of vindication. And that's what we talked about last week. And it's interesting that the vindication was not this, um, this sense of God showing us that our kind of privileged lives are the way it should be, but a whole different type of vindication that is God making God's kingdom 
real in the, in the world that we live in. And that is gracious. So th- th- those are just a quick thought. Molly, you, you want to weigh in of some, another thought or uh, that was a little bit of just maybe an over linear uh, thought, but something you want to emphasize out of this letter that struck you. Um, I think you got it. I mean, I think you hit the high points, right? I think one thing that is missing is a lot of conversations I had with y'all throughout First Peter. This was a really challenging series for many, and I heard multiple times, I can't wait until this First Peter series is over. Um, and so, because I think that it hits, I, the language within the text was challenging at times. Um, and I think even this notion of an apocalyptic ethic of love or talking about suffering and vindication, these aren't comfortable things that we want to talk about and talk about them in ways that actually affect our lives, right? Um, and so I guess I'm just really curious to hear from you all what, what struck you, what made you come to me or send a text or an email and be like, I can't wait until First Peter is over. Um, what, where is this sitting kind of with you? Because I think I'm not able to fully articulate what I think about the series because in some ways... I have lots of different thoughts running in my head right now about it. Um, so I'm interested to hear from y'all. And a place you can weigh in on that, we've done this in the last two or three weeks, is naming what that apocalyptic of love would look like for you. How, how would you know it if you saw it? How would you embody it if you were doing it? There's another way to, to lean into Molly's question. So thoughts on that? Any any. Any feedback, reactions, uh, a point that you wanted to make and you didn't get a chance to make it? Somebody on the spot here. Mark, did you make your peace with First Peter? <laughs> I have a few things to say, but I'm going to wait until I play music next. Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> Mark was one of the voices, you know, in text team that was, you know, I think embodied some of the struggle with the kind of the, the, the hard old language of this. Yeah. I think for me, the idea of apocalypse. We sort of came back to the idea that an apocalypse, a lot of people, I think, was expressing sort of serious, but it kind of hasn't happened. And yet there have been lots of apocalypses. And so the Roman world fell apart. Within, you know, a few years, Peter writing this, Jerusalem was besieged and taken up. Um, the, and this happens again and again. And, and, I, and I know I said when we last had this conversation, but we need to develop a sense that empires are not permanent because then the way in which you deal with them and respond to them is from this kind of eternal perspective of like, well, this thing actually, it looks strong, it looks like you can't take it down, but actually it's not going to last. And therefore, whether my own resistance overcomes it, whether I see it in my lifetime or not, becomes far less relevant because this thing's on on slippery ground. It's going to go down at some point. Um, And like I say, in my own life, I've... I've seen the apartheid regime come to an end, and it seemed really, really strong. Like you could not take these guys down. And then all of a sudden, you know, and now you know, can you find someone who supported it? It's really hard. <laughs> and it's the same with consumer capitalism. Maybe it'll be all of our lives, but actually, consumer capitalism is not something that's 
as strong as it looks. It's interesting that you made that point, Andrew, and I, th- I think it's a really good one that we, when we use the word apocalypse in a biblical setting, I was raised that that meant like the the, the moon turning to blood and sky. You know, I mean, you know, that doesn't happen. But think about it outside of theological circles. How often we talk about the uh, the housing or the market collapse in two thousand eight or two thousand nine is apocalyptic. And you hear people all the time. I, you have people that had resources say, "Hey, I finally got back to where I was seven years ago," or the housing market finally, you know, that sort of thing. So we use that a great deal. Uh, we, uh, we, we couldn't have imagined the, the, the end of uh, the Soviet Union in the 80s and its replacement in an entirely different type of institution with lots of, you know, I mean, the, the, the geography, the maps, if you drew a map in 2008, uh, you, would, you would be wrong. And so yeah, that's a good point that you made, that we, we somehow seem to think that the world isn't changing under, un, under our feet and we seem to imagine that our uh, communities, even small communities like this, are having no impact on the community. And, and that seems to be a misreading of that, uh, of that text or, or a, a mis-expectation of what we're reading. That's a good point. Anybody else? This is really all, like, and I talked to SK about this, this is really all based on stuff that she has, I've talked with her about, that comes up to mind when we talk about an apocalyptic epic of love and Empires being taken down. I think, um, I don't want to embarrass you, SK, but I think she is a great example of this and like has a blog post recently about the idea that if you are um, maybe privileged in this empire that we have now, that you can use that privilege on behalf of others. And I think like some of her work with the refugees has really been an example of that. And I think. It's inspiring to me to think that some of the things maybe I feel guilty about uh, could actually be used to turn something on its head. Yeah, I think one thing, I think that that's what I've been left with with First Peter and probably where some of my wrestling is, right? So I led the dialogue on an apocalyptic ethic of love and I led dialogue on kind of suffering or what does it mean, right, for the gospel to, be, to understand the gospel as this fiery ordeal that we're engaged in. Um, and because of that, and I think because of First Peter, what Emily is saying, I'm uncomfortable because First Peter, in a way that I wasn't expecting when we started, I've ended thinking I can't just not do anything, right? Like there's like, I feel like our dialogues um, throughout this series has caused me... Um, yeah, to wonder even with my privilege and even with this place in life and being at Emmaus Way, what does it really mean to live into um, these things we've discussed? What does it really mean to believe and think that the empires and these structures are not permanent, but that we can be agents alongside God um, to bring about a different way? And that requires... I don't think the phrase is grit in the game, but you know, like it's like we have to like get gritty and like in there. Um, and sometimes I just like watching Netflix and like, right? I mean, you know, talking to my friends and drinking my rosé. Um, so you do anyway, that well, Mark. I do. I do drink rosé quite well. So let me know if you ever want some. Um, but yeah, I think that that is sort of where I am, right? And even as within this community. What does it mean um, 
to take these things we've discussed seriously as we are living out being a community captivated by the gospel. That's really strong, beautiful language, right? Captivated by the gospel, rooted in the open table. Um, so how do we live into that um, with these First Peter discussions? It's funny, too. I have a, I'm not going to tell it tonight. I have a doozy of a story to tell that will, I mean, some of you have heard me say this, uh, pub group and otherwise, of incredible impact of just a, you know, a small organizing group of people and have a great story of just two of us uh, going to, uh, three of us, two plus me, to a, um, a board meeting a couple weeks ago that, that <laughs> created tons of words and, and changed stock prices in a significant way. So I feel like in my own reflective life, there's been some strong images that, that it doesn't take a whole lot to have huge impact. And obviously, hanging out in the moral movement, one of the things that's a, kind of a common trope of the moral movement is black churches reciting how few black churches were involved in the civil rights movement. The, the, the kind of the narrative is that you know 90% of all black churches were there at Selma when in reality um, um, that was not the case. One uh, percent to ten percent of the black church was a part of the civil rights movement, but that small group was unbelievably transformative. Um, something that I think uh, this I'll close my comments on this, but uh, one of the things that I think Molly and I want to incorporate in our dialogues this summer and beyond. We've talked about this a lot, and in the context with Mark and Elizabeth and and Ben and the staff team, we really think there's a vision that lies ahead in our community. I can hear some of it from Emily and Laura tonight in terms of things that we want to do as a community, but we really are probably, having been here all 11 years, I feel more galvanized of things that we can do and should do going forward. And I look around the room and looking at, you know, any given night between 35 and 60 people doesn't thwart me from thinking that these things aren't possible. So hopefully that's, we'd love to talk more about what we think are incredible possibilities given not just as Emily's talking about maybe the, the giftedness of our community, but, but maybe even more so the grittiness or, or to use our favorite uh, Luke word, our scrappiness, the, the willingness to kind of lean into changes that perhaps what Andrew's telling us is many people think are just can't be done despite a lot of evidence just in the last two decades of what dramatic things can be done by a, a gospel that is dominated by a radical view of love. So that, that's stuff we're thinking about. Molly, you want a parting shot on First Peter? I'm glad First Peter's over. But I look forward to more conversation. Um, and I think First Peter will be talking about that and talking about what Tim mentioned um, after the minister's liturgy tonight as we sort of think about what it means to live into this apocalyptic ethic of love as a community of co-ministers, right? Um, so, but before we get into the minister's liturgy in phase two, pass the peace. Say, say hello to someone. Get snacks. There looks like there's fabulous popcorn back there on the snack table. So pass the peace for a few minutes. Okay, if everyone could come gather back around, we're going to do our minister's liturgy. Uh, I'm 
Emily. I'm one of the lay leaders here, uh, and I'm going to lead this liturgy tonight. I think we have two or three people who are going to uh, participate as new co-ministers. If they want to come up here, that would be great. So uh, this is our community right of belonging. And I think Tim and Molly are going to explain more about why we're doing this tonight and uh, some of the history of this in the next section. But um, Sarah and Stephanie are going to participate tonight. Uh, If you turn over your sheet, I'm going to read what is in the, like, plain type. Those behind me are going to read most of what is in bold and italics, except when you see this welcoming the new ministers part, that's where we're all going to participate. Um, So let's get started. I'm going to move over here so I'm not blocking you guys. As those gathered in the name of Christ, we commit to the following principles. Oh, I'm sorry. I think we're all supposed to read this part together. (laughs) Not just you guys. Um, And I guess it's worth mentioning, too, like, as is often mentioned at this time, this is a commitment as a community. It's really hard to do all of these things, nay, probably impossible to do all of these things by yourself. But we're committing together as a community to work towards these principles. Okay, so take two. As those gathered in the name of Christ, we commit to the following principles. To imitate Christ in thought, word, deed, and affection. To simplify our lives through seeking sustainability in the use of our time, resources, and environment. To engage missionally in Durham and our larger communities as a redemptive presence and faithful service. To foster Proclaim by word and deed the gospel of Jesus Christ and to fashion your life in accordance with its precepts. You are to love and serve the people among whom you work, caring alike for young and old, strong and weak, rich and poor. You are to proclaim the gospel, to declare God's forgiveness to penitent sinners, to pronounce God's blessing, to share in the celebration of the mysteries of Christ's body and blood, and to perform the other tasks of the gospel entrusted to you. In all that you do, you are to nourish Christ's people from the riches of his grace and strengthen them to glorify God in this life and in the life to come. My sisters, do you believe that you are truly called by God and his church to this community of ministers? I believe I have Do you now, in the presence of the church, commit yourself to this trust and responsibility? I do. Will you be diligent in reading, in the reading and study of the Holy Scriptures and in seeking the knowledge of such things as may make you a stronger and more able minister of Christ? Will you undertake to be a faithful minister to all whom you are called to serve, laboring together with them and with your fellow ministers to build up the family of God? Will you do your best to pattern your life, partaking in the life of the community, in accordance with the teachings of Christ? 
Will you persevere in prayer, both in public and in private, asking God's grace both for yourself and for others, offering all your labors to God through the meditation of Jesus, mediation of Jesus Christ and in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit? May the Lord who has given you the will to do these things give you the grace and the power to perform them. Let's welcome them. We receive you into this fellowship and confess the faith of Christ crucified, proclaim his resurrection, and share with us in his eternal priesthood. We promise to encourage and support you in the truth as a fellow minister of this community, binding our lives to yours, that we may make known to the world the gospel of Christ through our love to one another. Welcome. May they exalt you, O Lord, in the midst of your people, offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to you, boldly proclaim the gospel of salvation, and rightly administer the sacraments of the new covenant. Make them a faithful minister, a patient teacher, and a wise counselor. Grant that in all things they may serve without reproach, so that your people may be strengthened and your name glorified in all the world. All this we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen. The of the Lord be always with you. We, if we just had a facilitator who could figure things out like that in a mass way, we would be so lucky. Um, <laughs> so we wanted to make just a couple comments about um, the minister's liturgy, transitioning that into kind of the summer and, and beyond, uh, particularly in terms of kind of our staff life together. Um, so when, when Stephanie and Sarah were reading that, right, did did anybody have this feeling like, oh crap, that's a lot? I mean, oh crap, what are the, don't don't say that stuff. That's a lot. Um, and so, one of the things that we did with this that I think was frightening and beautiful. I didn't write this, by the way. Um, uh, Dan Rhodes and Tracy Powell and um, four or five people that were. It was almost kind of the first. Uh, People that were in the pub group and text group, there was a group of people who did it. I wasn't even a part of the group, but they did something that was, I thought, ridiculously bold and genius in writing our community values. One is they, they, they took ordination language, right? So they took ordination language from the Book of Common Prayer, from uh, Methodist and Presbyterian and various kind of collected bodies and applied it to us. So it was a pretty bold statement. To say that typically what you do is you say to a congregation, be nice with each other, give us a little cash, volunteer when we need it, you know, we'll help when we need, you know, and, and then we'll, we'll jump in and do the big stuff. You know, that's, that tends to be the mindset of, of churches, and we wanted to invert that, to say all the big stuff is yours. So you'll notice that like in our most liturgical worship gatherings, things like Ash Wednesday or Maundy Thursday, things that might be perceived as priestly 
are always done by the community. So someone will confer ashes. Someone will, and, and so that was one of the crazy things about this: is we took ordination language and we applied it to the community. The other thing that was incredibly crazy, and this group debated this for a long time, is um, how did you feel about the doctrinal statement in this? How many people agreed with it, and how many people disagreed with it? Thumb up if you agreed. Thumb down. Well, there wasn't one, right? I mean, that was what was interesting: is that we we wrote values. And mission, and in some ways, what what Molly preached about an apocalyptic of love, a lived ethic of love, which we think is about as Christ-like as one could ever be, as the dominant centerpiece of this. And what it did is it opened up the space for a different type of community, communities where where there will be different theological postures and even non-theological postures, but where they're deeply welcome in the community. They're welcome in the dialogue. They're welcome in forming us. But oddly enough, we used orthodox Christian language to do that. So we were unambiguously placing ourselves in the Christian tradition, but holding that tradition in a really different way, meaning we weren't creating some sort of barrier to involvement for people who have different kind of perspectives on the Christian tradition or people who are outside or slightly outside of that. It was an incredibly bold thing to do. And and when we kind of brought it to the community, we're like, oh, Oh, crap, do we want to do this? Susan famously pointed out, I can't do all of that at all. And, and it, it became very clear to us that this was a we thing. And it shaped us as, an, as a different community. And so as, as Emmaus Way's being is essentially value-driven. And we meet every week to work that out. And Emmaus Way's being is essentially mission-driven in terms of living into this ethic that we... Um, that we, we aspire to be and do. And that sounds so simple to say it, but that is, that is in many ways a Copernican revolution as it relates to how church is done. And so that's kind of the, the backdrop. But it's interesting, we wanted to ask Molly this question because Molly's coming in as a pastor from, uh, from service in a, another tradition. Um, and and is is leading us, you know, moving forward in this. Uh, how does this strike you in terms of either coming into it or the possibilities that it creates moving forward for you? I think it's really murky, if I'm being honest. Um, I think it's really beautiful. So I actually, the minister's liturgy and this idea of every member of minister was um, what caught my attention kind of at first when... I was perusing the Emmaus Way website almost a year ago. Exactly. Um, I applied to Emmaus Way a year ago this week, which is crazy to think about. Um, But, so it's really beautiful. Every member, a co, like a minister, we are in this together. The communal aspect of living into a lived out ethic of love. Um, But it's really murky coming in as pastor, right? It's like, how are you pastor in a space of ministers? What does that look like? Um, Yeah, and so in some ways it's really beautiful and loving because I don't feel, right, like the weight of the church is on my shoulders in the way, right, like that you do in other typical churches. Um, But in other ways, it is. It's like trying to find... As staff and as pastor, and I think maybe Tim and Mark and Ben and Elizabeth might say this, how do we not only live into this minister's liturgy as a minister within this community, 
but also as a part of our vocation by being people you are investing in with um, the Emmaus, with the economic, financial economy of Emmaus Way. What does that look like? Um, it's odd that it locates us. It does. In the community rather than above the community mm-hmm. or outside of the community. Mm-hmm. But our kind of economic lives and the kind of, that maybe the extra time creates mm-hmm. a, a, a different tension. It does. It really, really does. And I've just been thinking a lot, too, about every time. I love now that we're doing the minister's liturgy at every ecclesia, every quarter, this notion that this is always in front of us and is always a part of who we are and who we are becoming. And I think what I love and find challenging is the same thing that I loved and found challenging about First Peter, Right. And I think sort of as staff, we've been thinking about this energy. Like, we aren't just passerby. Like, we aren't just sitting on the fringes. This is a community where you're just kind of in it, you know? And you're in it, and you are figuring it out, and we're in conversation, asking questions, and trying to live into lives that are captivated by the gospel. And for me, that is extremely profound, and his... um, I don't know. I just think I'm a more grounded person, pastor, minister, all of those things since stepping into a community that so believes in a minister's liturgy and every member a minister in ways that I never was before, right? Before I did things for people because just like, right, you pay the pastor to do all these programs, right? And look nice and show up to things and X, Y, and Z. But here it's like, We are working alongside one another. Um, And I think, yeah, and so I think that I am at a place, too, with the minister's liturgy and coming off of 1 Peter and looking into my first year um, in three months, like starting to come into being here nine months, is what does it mean for us to, like, reclaim and re, like, more boldly live into the minister's liturgy together? Because we're 11 years old now. This is still, these are still our values um, and what we hold dear. But yeah, like, what does it mean for all of us as ministers um, to more intentionally live into this coming off of an apocalyptic ethic of love? So that's some of my thoughts. But Tim, what about you? Those are good ones. I mean, I think this is one of the things that you could be um, not only prayerful for Molly, but, but attentive to. Because, you know, one of the things that's interesting is um, she brings, as does I think every staff member here, uh, maybe excepting myself, some unique gifts and capabilities that you bring into the community that, that you're, you're leading because of those capabilities, but you're leading in the midst of the community rather than over the community, around the community. And I think that's one of the funny dances that we do is that, um, you know, that, that we are... Um, we, we, we're unabashed in, in giftedness in certain ways, but, but also deeply inside the community. And then we're also equally overwhelmed by the giftedness of our community. I think maybe that's the exciting part of the tension is that rarely do I say something that I think is smart that I don't look around the room and say, oh, there's somebody here actually that knows that a lot better than I know it or, or have an experience that's more varied. And, and, you, and you guys know that we're inviting you uh, for the next 11 years. What we hope we've done in the first 11 is to preach with us every week is that your experiences are, are what makes it preaching. 
uh, because it's not just Molly's experiences or mine or, or the music that Mark loves to play. It's always deeply enmeshed in your hopes and your ambitions. So it, as it's always been, we say, that's why new people coming into our community is so incredibly precious to me because I, my life has been utterly changed by people who have come into this community. And one of the things we say is the dialogue changes uh, when, when new voices come in. It, it, it's changed radically in our 11 years. Um, one thing we do want to alert you to, I don't know if we'll have time to even jump into this, but one of the things the staff team, we were gathering this week talking about budget and plans for the future um, and, 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 um, and a variety of things like that. But um, one of the, the really unique kind of geniuses to Emmaus Way, we kind of got this right, Susan and Phil and Dave and Elizabeth and people around, is that when we talked at the very beginning about having a bivocational staff, that for us has been something pretty exciting because it means that everybody has something that's going on outside of their Emmaus Way life that comes and lands in the community. It also means that Emmaus Way is not a reflection of our either egos or capability. I mean, it, the strength of the community is more a reflection of your commitment and your passion and your desires rather than ours because we, we work for Emmaus Way during the week and we do other things. But one thing that I would ask you to be really attuned to is as we kind of looked at Elizabeth and Molly, myself, Mark, and Ben, people who are kind of on, on the staff people, we are all in very significant transitions this year. I mean, each of us has something about our life that is incredibly new that we've either never done before or we're in a phase where we're trying to massage it. And, and, and this is where Emmaus Way is a different type of community is that we definitely, and hopefully from all of us, we can share those things, are inviting you in to those transitions for you to be conversant with us about those. And we could name them, but I, I don't know. If we're probably out of time on that. But but uh, but we, we invite you, and hopefully Mark and Molly, Elizabeth, uh, Ben, all of us, when, when we're at the microphone or when we're doing stuff over the next two or three weeks, maybe we can create space to talk about those transitions. Because that's the exciting part of being a staff person in a community rather than serving a community is that our lives aren't, don't have this autonomous sense of we do stuff and tell you about it. It's that we, we talk together and imagine together. And that's always going to be the dance here by having bivocational staff. We're always going to need your feedback, uh, whether it's, you know, it's finishing a program for me, uh, starting one for Molly, uh, um, all sorts of things that, that are part of our lives. We're going to want you to speak into that and, and, and certainly pray with us and walk with us as wise friends through that. Uh. Yeah, I think that we and wanting, it seemed fitting to us as we're coming off First Peter, right? And this notion that we are to live in an ethic of love with our lives and with our actions and in community. Um, that we're asking all of us, ourselves as staff included, um, all of the co-ministers to just be prophetically in prayer, kind of I think is what Tim, like be in prophetic prayer about what this means for our community, uh, what this means being co-ministers with a staff that, um, we have like a rockin' staff team, like by golly, I hit the jackpot in coming to Emmaus Way with the staff we have. But yeah, like as staff, um, being in prayer with us as staff, what does it mean um, going into the next 11 years? So, yeah, 
Uh, those are some of our ramblings. Would love to grab coffee with anybody to talk about it after. Um, and Mark's going to ramble and tie it all together um, now with confession. And a single song. With a single song. <laughs> So yeah, I I realize as we've talked about First Peter, I, I realized that I I haven't necessarily done a great job of explaining um, my sort of difficulties with the book, and so I just wanted to just for a minute do that um, and say that it, because it ties into the last song I've chosen. I you know so I I sort of grew up in an evangelical um, context if not the church I grew up going to then then the, the Christian camps and um, parachurch ministries and stuff that I was involved with and so you know one of the things that that we did in those kinds of groups is you know I I got up all the way through middle school and high school I got up early in the morning and read my Bible for 25 30 minutes before going to school. Um, and had what we called a quiet time, if any of you remember that uh, terminology. Um, and, and, you know, there were, there were parts of my life where I could probably have recited most of the book of First Peter uh, back to you just cold, you know, because I had read it so many times, um, you know, in, in those kind of times before my day started. And so I think one of the things that's most difficult to me is as that part of my life evolved and as I... Um, sat in churches who, quite literally, even 10 years ago, uh, may, maybe 15 years ago, but I remember um, being in a church denomination where they would have very much defended some of the things that, that Peter says when he says, slaves obey your masters. And, and they would have said things like, you know, that the civil rights movement was um, was probably not, not done um, in, a, in a way that, that it should have been done or that it maybe shouldn't have even been done at all. Um, I began to associate uh, my reading of First Peter uh, with some of these some of these difficult theological concepts that started to stand out to me in a very very different way than they had when I was in high school. I mean, I look at this verse seven in chapter three right here um, in the in the NASB version. It actually says, "You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman." I mean, like, what a jackass. Like, seriously? Are you kidding me? And, you know, and, and the other night um, at pub group, Tim made a comment to me about how, you know, First Peter is tough, but man, wasn't it really tough when we did, um, when we did Joshua and Judges and those? And my thought was that, you know, not for me. Like, for me, Joshua and Judges and all those are easier because I can read those and say, okay, the people that, that were writing these, these books, um, you know, this is the way that they saw God uh, interacting with the world. But, I, but I, I don't agree with them. I actually think that this was the, the limited nature that they could understand what God was doing, that this made sense to them. But, it, but it's something that I think I can, I can say, yeah, I'm not sure that God really wanted you to wipe out all the children of the Amalekites or whatever. And so that one for me is a little easier to deal with. But... But, um, you know, husbands understand your wives since they are weak women. That's really hard for me. Um, and, and so, similarly, I realize I am, in fact, rambling, just as Molly said I would. But, but um, the song that I want to do now is, is by a songwriter that I found um, at a really, 
really important time in my life because I was going through um, sort of a second. Um, I've had I've had uh, cyclical depression over the years, and in my second like deep uh, depressive phase was my sophomore junior year in college, and um, really mostly junior year in college. But that's that's right around the time that I found this guy Mark Hurd, who I think is to this day one of my very favorite songwriters who ever lived, um, and. I, when I had been coming from a world that could read First Peter and say, oh, yeah, yeah, this is great. We endorse all this stuff. This is exactly how, how it should be. Yeah, yeah, you take these words at face value, and this is it. This is how we should live everything today. And, and coming into a different kind of songwriter who could say, yeah, the world is really effed up. Like, it's really messed up. But somehow I can still align myself with the story of this person named Jesus, Mark's music for me was, was something that gave me hope that I could, in fact, sing a lament, that I could, in fact, understand that the world was a broken place and yet still hold on to some, uh, hold on to the hand of Jesus in some, in some way, in some manner. So to me, this song is a song of confession because it actually admits uh, that things like the civil rights movement needed to happen. Things like anti-apartheid movement needed to happen. These are the things that, that needed to be done. Um, I can hold on to that and still at the same time um, affirm some sort of obedience to, uh, to Christ in some way. So this is a song called House of Broken Dreams. Uh, I've done a bunch of songs by Mark Hurd before. I don't know if we've done this one or not, but th- this, is, this is a really good one. This, for me, uh, was one of the first songs that I feel like I started to get it.
tonight comes from the great writer Wendell Berry. This is two sections of the same work uh, that are put together here for us. So, friends, every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord. Love the world. Work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. Please join us tonight at the table. We serve one another bread and wine, feeding one another, offering hope and peace and mercy to one another, offering fellowship to one another. Our table is an open table, meaning that all are welcome. And then as we transition from there into our meeting for Ecclesia, go ahead and get full food, pizza and stuff over there. And, and then we'll gather back here together in, what, 10 minutes? Something like that? Thank you so much for being here tonight. Please come to the table of God with us.